We're celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24 by counting down some of our favorite moments on air, from live broadcasts out on the road to coverage of the biggest news stories of the decade, and some of the many famous names that have graced our studios right around the world. First up for this episode, we look back to 2014, when our Tyler Berlay spoke to the legendary Australian food stylist Donna Hay about how she launched her career. For me, I guess that I always go back to my core, which is working on the product. So I don't kind of get carried away with all the theatre and the PR around it. I'm, I'm not out very often. I just really love what I do and I still work with my gang and I still love going to work. So I think that that's really my strength is that I'm in the office working and making sure that the product is the best that I can make it. This is radio, so maybe you should paint a picture because I'm sure many people would love you to demystify what work looks like. I mean, I've got one vision of maybe what the Donahay studio, kitchen, atelier setup might look like, uh, but what is it? Well, we have um, the top floor in a building in Surrey Hills in Sydney. Appropriately. And, yes, appropriately. And I've divided it into three because there's three different types of work needs, I feel, for us. So we have an office type situation where people need to concentrate and write words and sub recipes and have de- desks and computers, you know, that kind of. De- dull, boring stuff, you know, and we have the board and the art team and I have a desk in there. And then we have a really big daylight studio and a kitchen. Everything's on wheels so we can mix it around and just move it to how we want it for the day. So I'm very big on change. I know that not everyone is, but I like to change things up and move it around. So we have a very modular kitchen, but it has all domestic appliances in it. So like 10 domestic ovens, Everything's domestic because what we're doing is writing recipes for people at home. Not, not for, for not for hotel groups. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So everything's domestic. So it's on this grand scale, and then we have the most amazing. Do we want to give a plug for who the the appliances come from, or are there a variety of companies? No, they're from one, and you know what? They've been with me from day one. And whenever I ask them for anything, you know, it just appears. Fisher and Pagel. No, Smeg. Okay. Yeah, just all arrives. <laughs> Ding! Surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah. shiny, shiny, new. <laughs> and then we have a really large prop room that's highly organized by color and style. Is that the third and... zone? No, it's oh, part... still in, we're still in zone two. We're in two. Okay. And so that is next to the daylight studio. So it's all very open, but you can run in there really quickly as a stylist and know where the red ribbon is in the red ribbon drawer. And um, it's for highly OCD people, the prop room. And there's vintage wire. And, and you know, it's high, because, as you know, photography, it's probably the biggest part of my budget. So we mm. need to be quick. So it's really highly organized. Then we have this other cra- crazy area where there's hot glue guns and nail guns. And we make up sets and things to, that we need. So zone three is your office? No, zone three is the creative zone. It's kind of like a big meeting room, come discussion room, come new products. And it's a little bit more crazy. It's a bit more theatrical, loud. That's the loud room. I want to go back to zone two. Pretty much everything, of course, the magazine goes on location Mm -hmm. from time to time, etc. But when you... And I'm going to get gritty here. When you look at your budgets, et cetera, do you think that yeah, to make this work and to ensure that we are making profit, as you said, photography is a big bill. Mm-hmm. Do you try to make sure that you're doing 50, 60 percent in that space as well? So it's working hard for you. Or do you feel that issue to issue you, you drift? We can't drift too far, but we do drift. 
and we do get sponsors on board to take us places when we can. But we probably can be up to 80% in the studio. Right. And just building sets. and. So I'm looking at the Christmas issue. So is most of Christmas in Surrey Hills? Yeah, wow. it is. See, I am head of HR as well as OH&S. Oh, so if no that one window need, no set needs, falls down... No one down, needs an HR department. Yeah, if that window set falls on someone, come and see me. Exactly. I'll get you some sort of <laughs> sticky plaster. You'll be fine. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw your credits was when Mary Claire, before it became even the international franchise that it is today, there was this Mary Claire Lifestyle magazine came out to threaten and challenge the likes of Bell and Uh Vogue Entertaining and Vogue Living and all of those things. And it it was great. And then one day it was also, it was gone. Did you leave before that happened? Yeah, I did. So what you were saying is that it it disappeared because you left. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you said that. No, I don't think so. But, you know, I, the only reason I left is because being a freelancer, you kind of dip in and out of an office and, um, the straw that broke the camel's back, as we say, was I was styling a big shoot for Murray Claire Lifestyle. And um, it was in some sand dunes. We had a block printed tent from Rajasthan. I had a white horse. I had a model, beautiful fabrics blowing in the wind, all the food, walked it, you know, almost a kilometre into sand dunes. And then when I saw what the art director wanted to do with the film mm. back in those days, mm. it just broke my heart, absolutely broke my heart. And then I gave up after that. I almost actually left the entire business publishing full stop you go freelance you go independent you launch your own brand in a market which maybe wasn't as crowded as it is today in australia um, even though of course some magazines have some favorite magazines have also disappeared in australia how did you do it how did you set up your own shingle oh my goodness so naive so didn't know what I was doing, put my head down the and club. just had a go. It was crazy. It was so crazy. And yeah, I think I had nine weeks to get the first issue out. Mm. I really just put my head down and panicked. And I, I guess when you're 31, it's probably the best time to do it because you're so oblivious to what could go wrong. And I was just... Oh my goodness! Now, did you did back. you go to for the funding? Did you go to a big media company? Did you go to ANZ Bank? I and mean, how, how did it all come about? After the sand dune after story, the Rajasthan, yeah, after the Rajasthan block fabric, yeah, 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 which ruined my life, I started to very arrogantly, as a thirty year old, make up my own magazine on my studio wall. So I had my own daylight studio. Everyone back then. has to have playtime, though. Yeah. So I was kind of, you know, like, well, if I had a magazine, this is what it would look Mm. like. So I started to make up a magazine on the wall and people started to find out about it. That's how I got two offers really quickly. I was meant to join Martha Stewart's team in New Mm. York and I flew home to make my decision and Lachlan Murdoch made me an offer for the magazine and that's where it started. Next up, we look back to 2012, when Robert Bound was joined on Monocle on Culture by the music legend John Cale of the Velvet Underground. He dropped by to discuss his then-new album, Shifty Adventures in Nookie Wood. A lot of the other albums, you sit down with a guitar and you get an idea. You sit down with a piano, you get an idea. This one, you sit down with a, with a drum kit and you get an idea. And then you get all involved in your MPC and you... you uh, Use your swing button to access. Okay. And you try and get as much funk into it as you can. Tell us about your swing button, because some people button, won't be au fait with that. Well, there's some argument about my swing button, because if I <laughs> It use, sounds like a Nookie Wood anecdote <laughs> That's here. right. You don't want to play with my swing button. <laughs> Not indeed. The, um, 
you can go to boom and you can use swing and, and you you have it at 40%, you go to someone else and the 40% is negotiable. So um, in, a, in a song like Vampire Cafe, for instance, you have a couple of grooves that collide with each other. And when I I usually try and put live live drums on top of the, the samples. A lot of drummers that I they try to use and they try to straighten out the groove because it lurches. It really, it's. But that's actually what you wanted. You wanted a bit of a yeah, a layer, a little languorous kind of feel to it. So it's all in the swing. Yes, that's an unusual place to start a record with with a drum kit. As you say, most people start with a guitar. You've often start with a viola. Um, Does that inform the whole of the rest of the album when the place in which you start? Yes. I mean, it gets me. My juice is going quicker. The song, what the topic is, what the textures are going to be, etc. Brian Burton, you collaborated That's on a few right. of your songs on this new mm-hmm. record. Um, people know him as Danger Mouse. Mm-hmm. He's quite a kind of gauzy muddle. He, he, he makes kind Man, of... Man, you have great language. Gauzy. It's that sort of thing, isn't it? That's... It's kind of like you're listening to it through a kind of like a, a screen door in an uh, American true. house. A lot of his... I mean, yeah. The history even with Danger Doom. Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah, he's an interesting character. And he's very fast, which was impressive. Is he? Well, when you have when you work with computers and and artists, you're always like chasing one or the other. He's always like a little step ahead of me. It was really, it was, it was great. I mean, we got a lot of work done about a couple forty eight hours. We were working on um, short wave set, and okay, yeah. uh, and, and then we knocked out these odd bits that never got finished. So I went back and finished it. And just working with someone like that, who has a sort of similar way of disturbing the sound he of has. records somehow. He, yeah. That's that sort of thing that you've been very well known for. How do you, do you did you kind of come up, come up against no, I, each other? Is it a beautiful It was it was a surprise because when I got the track I hadn't I'd heard them, I I had mixes of them. And then I asked can we make a deal about the tracks I can finish them off fine. Yeah. And then when I got them back there was stuff in there that I really thought would just throw away things that really didn't matter but it's kind of important to really the stuff that you throw away is often the stuff that really shows your character and your personality. It's, it was it's really good. And do you know that Are you almost expecting after after you know after half a decade, half a century of doing this, do you kind of know you almost expect some of the offcuts to be the things that you're making new clothes with? Almost, do you know what I mean? Yeah, that don't, that happens a lot of times. Yeah. yeah, the track itself is is a little separate from the rest of the album because he plays he played all the instruments on it, and he has. Uh, he plays them very differently from what I play. I, I hit kind of, and he is very gentle, very sweet sort of player, and has this nice lolling kind of Detroit feel about it. Right, which is what I remember about the track because I wanted I wanted something like that in, on the record. So I think you know the single tambourine kind of very gentle. So, so you're more of a you're more pugilistic, and he's more of a a little bit right. It's not a lot, yeah. <laughs> It's all. A, it's it's going to come out in the swing button somewhere. Yes, yeah. Going back to the name of the record, "Shifty Adventures in Knocky Wood." Do you have? Do you have an idea of what it looks like, Knocky Wood, in your head when you're making these things? Is there? Is no. I, I, when the song "Knocky Wood," for instance, which mm. where I, I I just I finish the album. That's when the title has to come. And it maybe it comes from the record. Maybe it comes from somewhere else. But you start going through the songs and finding things. So it's, you just need a little bow to tie it up and present it, and. Um, that song anyway, Nookie Wood, has a lot of strange atmospheres in it. And about a week ago, I was, um, I decided to watch this film I hadn't seen in years, Blade Runner. Right. And I was wondering why I was so much in love with this Vietnamese girl talking in the back on a station platform. You know, <laughs> and, it was, and it's right there in, in Blade Runner. That's what I loved about Blade Runner. And, and you know, you, these sound designs that were, that were 
really beautiful. That's the thing. I mean, lots of people. It's it's not just sitting down. It's not sitting down with a terrifying blank page in front of you or the 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 keys of your piano like teeth in front of you. Presumably, you can you can draw you draw inspiration from every everything. I mean, everything. There's there's all sorts of things come into that melting pot. Is that I wonder also if there's a time of the year when you kind of realize that it's record time when you have you're going to start writing because you've made so many records you made 30 records yeah no i think it goes on i mean the funny thing about today is that there's all this constant request for b-sides so right you know it's stuff that you i mean we start with about 40 songs you cut it down to about 20 then down to 12 so then you have to go back to the stuff that you really written off for a bit and see what you can and generally i don't like to go back there and Generally, I start something new, and, and these, so it just keeps going on. I mean, I, I don't like being in the studio. I like I like the open air and getting out and, and other things. So I sort of taught myself to be really efficient and focus on certain things and, and learn when to stop. Last year, we released a podcast called The Power of Sound. And for that, we spoke to the wildlife recordist Chris Watson, who is one of the best known in his field, having worked with the likes of David Attenborough. Here he talks about some of his experiences recording the natural world and why sound is so powerful. When you put a pair of headphones on, no one else can hear the world like you can. It's a unique, intimate experience. And I I, I love that, I value that, it's very precious to me. But I also like the broadcast of those sounds in its widest sense, whether it's on a CD or a radio programme or in front of an audience. constantly changing in our acoustic environments are constantly changing we're losing animals at a greater rate than ever before so the sounds of some animals are disappearing I remember the golden frog in Panama which was the I think it's, it was still the national symbol of Panama an animal that became extinct during the process of making a film there but we're in a constantly changing environment and some of that a lot of that can't be stopped it's not progress it's just a change the bird song in my garden has evolved in the 20 years, 20 odd years I've been living here. But that's a natural part of the process. As the climate changes, as the weather conditions change, as animal migration moves, the sounds of places evolve alongside with that. Quite a few years ago now, I was working on a BBC series called Big Cat Diary, which was about cats in East Africa, in the Maasai Mara, sort of lions, leopards and cheetahs. And um, I was working with a camerawoman 
and she could fill the frame with one of these animals' eyes with her 50,000 euro Canon telephoto lens from 100 metres away. There is no audio equivalent of that. And I thought about how I could get some sounds in super close-up to match her close-up photography. And that's when I decided to use personal microphones, the microphones like the one I'm wearing now to speak to you, because they're very small visually, not very intrusive, and that's what they're designed for. So I thought then, you know, there's much more interesting places to put these microphones rather than on people. Uh, And so I ended up fixing two of these microphones inside a zebra carcass and then running a very long cable back and waiting for the vultures to come down, which Justine could film beautifully on her Canon lens and get super close-ups. And I could then record super close-up sound. And the interesting thing about that is that listening and looking to that film back, the pictures became redundant. I mean, there's a saying that radio's better than television because the pictures are better. And of course, what sound does is fire our imaginations in quite a unique way. And the intensity of the sounds around that zebra carcass with the vultures feeding on it defied any two-dimensional visual image. Uh, And it it burns like a lot of the best sounds. It's very visceral and it burns directly into our hearts and imaginations. That's how powerful sound is. There's one sound I have been looking for, trying to record for a very long time, and that's the song of the largest and loudest animal which has ever lived, which is the blue whale. And it's so far eluded me, so that's um, certainly on top of my wish list. Although generally I'm not really goal-oriented, I just really enjoy, yeah, I enjoy recording the hedgehogs in our back garden as much as I enjoy recording blue whales in the Sea of Cortez. There's, there's really so much to listen for and get pleasure listening to. The Golden Age of Aviation is a program that Monocle 24 made in association with Breitling. It explored the mid-20th century era of commercial flights, meeting the pilots, designers, and crew who were all a part of it. Plenty of publicity stunts are implemented by airlines to lure passengers on board, of course. Air Canada gave unexpected expats in London free flights back to Canada for Christmas. And Richard Branson has come up with some vast amounts of tricks for Virgin, like imprinting his face on in-flight ice cubes and taunting a rival airline with a blimp flyby. However, none are quite as elaborate as Cathay Pacific's 1974 campaign for its then-new route from Hong Kong to Sydney. They hope to take on Qantas with a new plane, the Boeing 707. 
Cathay Pacific sent a group of its own pilots and flight attendants on a tour of Australia with leading Cantonese pop star and actress Frances Yip and a 22-man Gurkha pipe band. Frances Yip recorded a Cathay Pacific-branded album called Discovery, with a title track about flying with the airline and other songs portraying destinations on the network. They were all part of a Cathay Pacific show in which Frances sang, and the flight attendants took to the catwalk wearing their national costumes. Monocle's Sydney correspondent, Clarissa Seabag Montefiore, caught up with Francis Yip to find out about his musical journey. I started with Cafe Pacific in 1972, I think. I sang their first ever jingle. In those days, they were still flying Convairs, and they wanted a jingle, and their the slogan they most often use is discovery. They have discovery tours, and they encourage people to discover a, a bigger world. So the theme of the jingle was called Discovery. And I sang that and they were very pleased with it. And in 1973, they offered me a job as um, a goodwill ambassador to promote Hong Kong as a destination in travel conventions, basically, around the world. I was very young. I was already singing. And I wanted to see the world, so I left my job at the Hong Kong Bank. I was a secretary there, and then I joined Cathay as a, as a sales promotions officer, the correct title. But what I used to do was to go around in all the travel conventions and sing on Hong Kong nights, go on the radio to talk about Hong Kong, go on television to talk about Hong Kong, and basically introduce Hong Kong as a travel destination to people all around the world. And what was it like being on the actual plane? How long were you on for? And and, and you were with the air hostesses and the pilots and a band as well. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, actually, um, when I was with Cathay, I knew most of the stewardesses because when I joined them, they were not a very, very huge company as they are now. And it was wonderful. It was There's a great group and family teamwork feeling. One of the things that we used to do with Cafe was to hold a big promotion about Hong Kong with the Hong Kong Police Band. And they were perfect Chinese faces, but they play bagpipes. And, you know, they're basically... Uh, formed like the Gurkhas. Um, they play bagpipes, they play drums, and it's a marching band. So it's a little bit unusual to have a singer singing with them. And we've been to so many places. It started in 74. The first tour we did was to Sydney when they launched the Sydney service. And we did the six-city tour in Australia. That was also my first trip to Sydney. And we had the stewardesses and we had the, um, the police band with us. I was able to break out of Hong Kong with them and work all over the world. On the, this tour with the police band, the Gurkha, the 22-man Gurkha pipe band, the flight attendants took part in fashion shows wearing their national costumes. Can you just paint a scene for us about what that was like? Basically, we would have a party in each of the major cities we go to, and it would be a Hong Kong theme. And then early in the evening... Uh, before the guests would sit down, the pipe and drum band would come in. And it's actually very impressive because you've got, you know, 40-odd people doing bagpipes and trumpets and, you know, 
coming in, ah, these Scottish tunes, you know, Loch Lomond and all sorts of, you'll take the high road and I'll take low road, you know, and marching in and you get the attention. And then the stewardesses would be in all their national costumes. And then I, I also act as a bit of an MC and I would invite them onto the stage to greet everybody in the national language and and talk a little bit about their costume. And I remember one of the Japanese stewardesses is wonderful. She's got a wicked sense of humor. And I said to her, I said, oh, this is a wonderful costume. Is it true that it takes a long time to put a kimono on properly? And she said, oh, yes, sometimes it could take as long as 30 to 40 minutes to get it all right, you know, complete with the hair. So I said, oh, then it must be very troublesome to take it off. And she said, oh, depends on who I'm taking it off for. I thought that was a wonderful answer, <laughs> and everybody enjoyed it. Kowloon, Kowloon, Hong Kong. We like Hong Kong. That's a place for you. One of the first projects I was given to do when I joined Cafe, they asked me if I could record a collection of songs taken from each of the country the airline was servicing, and. I said yes very boldly without really understanding you know how much was involved in the work then started the long track of writing to all the countries to each manager in each port to say make a suggestion of what should be recorded then I also had to travel to each place to negotiate with some of the writers if they were still alive. If it was the copyright was in public domain then that was all right some of them are nursery rhymes and I can remember going into the studio. This is I joined Cathay in April, April 1st, 1973, and we were in the studio by July. And it was ready by uh, by October. And they were so delighted with it. They said, "Right, we want to release this in EMI Asia." For me, this record introduced me to Asia. I sold more albums in Thailand than the Carpenters <laughs> at the same time because they've never had a foreigner who recorded a Thai song with a Western angle of the music. The song that I chose from Thailand is called Bua Kao, which means a white lotus. And it's a song that many people from different generations would know it. It's supposedly written by a prince. It's also a bit like a nursery rhyme. And it describes a lotus growing out of the mud and how beautiful it is and clean and precious. I think I had an accent and the Thais found that incredibly cute. <laughs> So I became known as the, the Lotus Lady, uh, or the girl, Lotus Girl. And I can remember um, after the, it sold so many records, when I went to Thailand for the first time in 1975, I sang in a stadium. And when I arrived at the airport, I was mobbed like the Beatles. I was totally flabbergasted. <laughs> but on the album, we always start with uh, a the, the theme for the airlines. So the first jingle I sang for them is Discovery. Smiling faces, going places, don't be sad, pack your bag, Cathay Pacific way to fly, Discovery. Discovery. 
and that's on Discovery One, which was recorded in 1973. And then we have a song from Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Taiwan we sang in Mandarin, and the Philippines, Malaysia, and Indonesia is the same language. It's the Bahasa. And then from Hong Kong, we chose Kowloon, Hong Kong, which is a very catchy little ditty that everybody knows how to sing. I'm sure you've heard of it. Kowloon, Kowloon, Hong Kong. We like Hong Kong. That's a place for you. It's very cute. Do you think this trip worked for Cathay? Did it did it put Cathay Pacific on the map? Well, um, for many years, whenever I sang anywhere, if I'm doing a big concert, Cathay Pacific would be a sponsor because uh, they need to fly me in either from Hong Kong or from wherever, and they would come in as a sponsor either with a ticket or uh, some sort of advertising sponsorship. So my identity with Cathay has always been quite firm, and I don't think I have been represented. I I don't think I've ever represented any other airline. In fact, I'm going to have a concert in June in Sydney on the 23rd of June at the Stark. Um, event center, and <laughs> the Cathay Pacific is a sponsor. <laughs> so my identity with them and my loyalty with them has always been uh, very strong. Smiling faces, going places. Don't be sad. Pack your bags. Cathay Pacific way to fly. On a special edition of the Bulletin with UBS, we heard from Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton and Mark Polak. This is part of the UBS program to support inspirational thought leaders through its Global Visionaries program. Hamilton arrived at Monocle HQ as a five-time world champion. Polak, who lost his sight at age 22 and broke his back in a fall that left him paralyzed 12 years later, dedicates his life to finding a fast-track cure for paralysis. Here's a snippet of the conversation. I was chasing girls from a very young age. <laughs> I was very determined. Winning mindset. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, man, I was just competitive in everything I've ever done. I always find it really intriguing when people comment to people when they've, you know, if they've set themselves a goal, but they've not fully got exactly to where they wanted to be. And they're like, yeah, but you still did it. And they ask you to be grateful for what you have achieved. But the thing is when you're motivated and when you're so driven to succeed and to excel, you're not going to be satisfied until you've got to where your goal is. You know how that is. Mm. But, but I've always just been super competitive in absolutely everything. Since the day that my dad, we used to go to Blockbusters on weekends. And he used to, when we come out of the Blockbuster store, he was like, I race you to the car. I was like five, six years old. And he would always beat me to the car. <laughs> He'd never let me win. So from that, I was like, I'm never going to let anyone win. And I think it's just installed in me since a young age. And Mark, I guess sport has an amazing power to deliver, doesn't it, that? And you've done so many uh, sporting achievements, whether it's in rowing. I don't even know if it's sport. It's almost like in- endurance athletic mm. events, I suppose, are the things you excelled in even after your, that you lost your, your sight. Endurance but, is an understatement. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> 43 well, days. Well, this is it. 43 days in the Antarctic sort of, well, wilderness, I, I guess we could, mm. we could call it. Is sport uniquely well qualified to bring the best out of people, do you think? Best and the worst. We see all sorts of of versions of this. I think sometimes the idea of being competitive or being a competitor, it can have negative connotations. Some people see it as a selfish endeavor or uh, that in order for one person to win, someone else must lose. And in sport, 
I suppose in a way there's a you can study it sort of a abstract in a way you can look from the outside in and and someone necessarily like Lewis does win and therefore other people have to lose but just to take it in the context of sport and not apply it to the wider world I think the danger is that you we can think of competitors as just being selfish and, and negative in my case whenever I went blind I felt that I was going to necessarily have to sit on the sidelines as a spectator and over the following 10 years I found I didn't realize I was doing this but I I realized that I could be a competitor again and did all these adventure races eventually racing to the south pole but what I discovered along the way that the competitor like racing your dad to the mm. to the video shop you know the competitor is pursuing success mm. risking failure and the way I came to make sense of it having the fear that I was going to have to sit on the sidelines. It didn't have to be that way, that I could be a competitor, pursuing success, risking failure. But for me, importantly, being defined by my willingness to try. Because mm. I think the guys who came second and third and fourth and the teams that yeah. you beat, yeah. you know, they're all out there. They're all doing their best. They're all trying. It's just sometimes uh, people come up on top. Mm. And Lewis, mm. to that point about success becoming almost dangerous in a way, precisely because you're you're putting yourself in the line to take these kinds of risks. You're there to be knocked down. And I guess the more success you have, you're not just the four-time champ, you're the five-time champ. The risks almost become greater. How do you go into looking ahead to next season? Because, you know, people will be gunning for you even more now. Do you just use that to sort of galvanise your team and galvanise your um, own sort of positivity going forward? Well, I think it's an interesting thought. I think, I mean, failure is inevitable when you're on a journey to getting to wherever it is you're targeting. And I think um, it's the failure that actually spurs you along. It's also helps build character and the foundation of which you're able to then continue to build. Mm. For me in my career, it's not been I've just won everything. I've had a lot of failures, a lot of miss uh, shortcomings and those have really helped shape and round me as the competitor I am. But I love how sports really does, you know, firstly, it brings people together. So for example, for me, I do get to work with a massive team. And right now we're, even my, my season's only just finished. I'm already like, okay, how can I be better for next year? There were things this year, which whilst it was my best you know, year of my career, there were still shortcomings. There were still weekends where I wasn't able to deliver. There were still weak areas. So how can I rectify those? How can I keep what I have but add to that super solid foundation that I have and that's what sports brings to people it brings uh, you know it does bring the best and the worst out of people because these I don't like losing if there's any sportsman in the world that says they man or woman that says they like losing I think they're completely they're lying yeah you know like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe they can put it off with a smile in front of the camera or whatever it is but when they get back in their room they or internally you're feeling the pain you know yeah. And that's the great thing that encourages you to get back up the next day and push harder or push that extra rep when you're working out, which is awesome. Monocle 24 has taken our staff all over the world over the years, but sometimes we find ourselves in unexpected places doing unexpected things. For an episode of Monocle on Culture, Holly Fisher headed down to the Thames estuary where she met mudlark Nicola White to go hunting for messages in bottles. But before that, they met in her studio in Greenwich to look at some of the ones she's found in the past. The first one was by accident. It was uh, my dog who found it, came bounding along with a 
with a plastic bottle with a little note in it. And after that, I started actively looking for them. You've got a folder in front of you now with all your messages in. Perhaps you could talk us through a few of those and some of the people that you've come across. Well, I've got a huge mixture of messages. I think one of my favourite ones has got to be, I wish I could be a Dino Thunder Power Ranger, the Red Ranger from Jack Hodges. Um, he didn't have any contact details on it at all, just his name. But through Twitter, we did manage to, to trace this boy and we sent him a Power Ranger outfit and he was absolutely thrilled with that and he wrote back to us when, with a picture of him in his Power Ranger outfit. I found another one here actually which is in the bottle recently which I love because some of the messages are in plastic bottles which is all well and good but to be honest it's nicer to find them in glass bottles because it's more ecologically friendly. But this one, which is very pleasant says, my name is Georgie Manor, England, East London, age 50. Whoever finds this bottle, well done. This will bring you good luck and happiness. And then he gives a phone number. So I contacted the number and eventually I heard back and it turned out that this person was a, an ex-armed robber in prison whose friend had thrown this in the river and he wanted to put something good back into the world. And I had an interesting chat with him. Uh, as far as I know, he's still in prison. <laughs> But I have had lots of good luck and happiness, so... <laughs> Thank you, Georgie. <laughs> I like how he, on the back of that, put an address of message in a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> message in a bottle, message in a bottle. <laughs> OK, well, we're near Higham, um, right next to the Thames estuary. It's quite a remote place, you don't see too many people here and there's been some very high tides recently so there's a lot of debris washed up. Amongst the debris there are a lot of bottles and so it's the sort of place where if you're lucky you might stumble across a message in a bottle. You get a lot of red herrings, <laughs> food yeah. wrappers in bottles. You get that excited feeling and then you pick it up and it's a, a crisp packet. Are there normally certain spots where you find certain things? Yeah, and no, particularly along the sea wall and in the little nooks and crannies where things tend to accumulate. So we're uh, looking in the corners. Yes. We were talking before we turned the microphone on a little bit about some of these messages and some of them are quite funny and some of them are quite personal. How do you choose which ones you, you keep and you investigate and which ones you throw back in the water? If a message is particularly personal, for example, a month or so ago, I found a message in a bottle which was obviously written by a family to a member of their family who had died recently and I, I read it and I thought no that that needs to carry on its journey along the river so I put it back in the bottle and sent it on its way. I think you need to have due respect for people's feelings and some things just aren't appropriate to to share you know it, it's private. What's the furthest place you've ever had one come from? I found a lovely message that was written in 2007 by a Swedish family that was celebrating their brother's 40th birthday and they asked whoever found the bottle to please send a happy birthday message to their brother. And of course, by the time I found it, he would have been 48, I suppose. <laughs> and I did contact them and, and she was quite emotional that I'd found this bottle after such a lot of time. Do you find you get many emotional responses? Because... You throw these things in the water 
thinking, you know, it would be nice if someone found it, but what are the chances? There must be so many thousands of messages in bottles in the sea. That don't get found. Yeah, absolutely. I've got one here. It's from a little girl called Neve. And she, I mean, it was very, it was almost falling apart when I found it in the bottle. It's lucky that I could actually read it. But she drew a little picture when she was three, yeah, three years old. And so she, when I found it, that was 11 years previously that she'd thrown it in. And she, I think, found it quite, yeah, special seeing something that she'd done all that time ago and probably completely forgotten about it. Oh, it's just... Oh, someone's vouchers. Yeah. Vouchers in a vouchers bottle. Vouchers in a bottle. <laughs> and a feather. And a feather in a bottle. It's another wrapper in a bottle. <laughs> Having a little red herring today. If you're going to write a message in a bottle, do write it in pencil. I mean, this is a good example. You see, I can't really read that, although it says something like, please help me, I am stranded on a desert <laughs> island. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't read which one because the ink tends to be bleached by the sun over over the years. So I have found messages with nothing on them whatsoever. And you think, oh, it's such a shame. So I would say a good glass bottle with a very tight fitting cork written in pencil. And uh, there you are, you're away. I think there's something symbolic about throwing a message in a bottle in the water because you're letting go of something, whether it's feelings or emotions. I mean, that's how I look at it. I think you're letting go and then you have to leave the outcome, really, and see what happens. Lots of bottles, but so far, no No messages. messages. Now, one of the very special series we have produced was called A Giant Leap. For episode one, Andrew Muller met with Charlie Duke, the lunar module pilot on Apollo 16. There are only 24 of us have seen the whole circle of Mm. the Earth. Millions, billions of people have seen the photographs we took of the circle of the Earth. But the photographs cannot capture the drama and the emotion that one sees when you see uh, this beautiful Earth just suspended in the blackness of space. Our view from about uh, 30,000 kilometers was the Arctic Circle down across Canada, the United States, Mexico, and Central America. And the west coast of South uh, California was clear, and you could see the Rocky Mountains and all of the southwest United States. And it was all brown. The snow and the clouds were pure white in the ocean. The Pacific and the Gulf of Mexico was just crystal blue. And that jewel was just suspended in the blackness of space. It was breathtaking. Were you and the other astronauts surprised by those moments of epiphany at seeing the world like that? Had you thought in advance about what that might feel like, or was it one of those things where you were just so focused on completing the mission, getting there and getting back in one piece that you hadn't thought about, whether it might have an impact beyond that? Well, of course, I'd seen the photographs at Apollo Mm. 11 and 12, and all of them had taken... But the photographs do not capture the emotion that one has when you see it for the first time. So I was, uh, I wouldn't say I was uh, transfixed by it, but it was a breathtaking. You know, I'm seeing the earth that only very few people have seen uh, in history. Mm. And so that was a very significant moment. I didn't dwell on it very long because we were busy docking with the lunar module and stuff like that, but it's, it floated under my window. I got the chance just to look out and uh, see that 
beautiful Earth. This has been said a lot about the Apollo programs. That they, they did galvanise, I guess, a sense of collective enterprise and collective accomplishment in humanity that all the world's peoples could look up and see, well, a small select grouping of us accomplished this monumental thing. Was that something that you felt at the time about Apollo, that you were, you were acting on behalf of uh, an uplifting enterprise for humanity? Or was it, again, just thinking we have here a bunch of extremely complicated problems to solve and that's what we're focusing on? Somewhere in between that. <laughs> uh, I was just focused on my job and the, uh, the techniques and the knowledge that we needed to do complete our, our mission. And uh, I think everybody, at least on the crew and in mission control, had the idea if this thing fails, it's not going to be my fault. <laughs> so you were really focused on doing your job. And uh, so as I look back on it, it wasn't spiritual. It wasn't philosophical adventure. It was uh, an experience for me. It was an adventure and a, uh, a technical challenge to finish this mission and get to do everything that you had planned to do. So our focus was the operation side of but enjoying it while we were there. John and I had trained in, uh, in, uh, with humor in our training because training was very arduous. And so we tried to break the tensions. And so the, we decided on the moon we'd have the same experience, that we would continue just like we were in training. And if you listen to our transcripts back uh, while we were on the surface, we just were having a lot of fun. But the focus was to get the job completed. And so I didn't sit there on a stand on the moon and ponder the origins of the universe or anything <laughs> like that. It was just, let's do the job and enjoy it. It was beautiful. I mean, it was not mesmerizing, but it was certainly one of the most uh, magnificent deserts I'd ever seen in my life, untouched, unspoiled. And I kept having this, this feeling, nobody's ever been here before. And these steps are the first steps in the Descartes Highlands ever. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the idea of it being fun because I wasn't, I wasn't sure how to bring that up in what was obviously the context of a very serious, difficult and dangerous mission. But was there a part of you when you were, for example, driving around the moon on the lunar rover that was basically just thinking Yahoo? Exactly. <laughs> I, I, in fact, I use fantastic and Yahoo a lot. And, uh, I didn't drive the rover. Uh, John was the driver. Uh, my job was to navigate and to take pictures every 50 meters and to describe the terrain that we were going over because underway you didn't have any TV. And so my job was to, to be the travel guide, but my <laughs> travel group was in Houston. And so I was describing all of this uh, terrain. Uh, and we were having, uh, John was speeding down the mountains and we were bouncing up and down. Look out, John. And he'd do a U-turn around, or not a U-turn, but a a spin around a rock or you go over a crater and we didn't know what was over there and as you went over you might have a big crater or a rock or something in front of you and uh, so it was fun and bounce the, the rover was really fun to be on now back in 2013 we set out on a pacific northwest tour that took the team to portland seattle and vancouver in this clip live from portland tyler berlay and tom edwards meet the american designer tinker hatfield there is little doubt that athletic achievement is in our first guest DNA, an All-American track and field star in hurdles and vaulting. He was an All-State running back and a sun-kissed All-American top 100 football player. In 1970, he was named the state of Oregon's top individual high school athlete. Sports in Oregon are clearly 
when Tinker Hatfield's blood. But all those career accomplishments on the field are only the groundwork for some of Tinker's other achievements. As Vice President of Design and Special Projects at Nike, he has overseen the design of some of the most iconic footwear in the world. His projects include the ubiquitous Nike Air Jordan line and my personal favourite, the Air Max running shoe. In 1998, Fortune magazine named Tinker as one of the 100 most influential designers of the century. And some of his design work for the Air Jordan is included in the Smithsonian Museum for Design. Now, anyone else attempting a similar CV would clearly have tough shoes to fill. Tinker Hatfield lives right here in Portland. And he joins us here at the Ace. Good afternoon. Hello, guys. It's great to, great to see you. Now, Tinker, the last time I saw you was about uh, 20 years ago. I was here on assignment for uh, a British magazine. It's no longer around, but it was a, it was a bit of a pop culture title uh, called, called Sky Magazine. I remember go, you know, going out to Beaverton and I mean, in Portland. You know, it's, it's just changed so dramatically. But there, came over to your campus uh, and, and really experienced something quite amazing. And I remember you told me about a project uh, which was was going to be in Brazil, and you're looking at one in New York, and it was it was this this idea of almost this you know incredible sort of sport track sort of facility, almost Nike developing a project that was almost going to be like a private park. Um, <laughs> and I don't think it sort of quite came off in Sao Paulo, but you know, so many other things have spun off on on such an incredible level. I, I wanted to start. You know, where, where do you see? Nike, and this is a big question, but you know, where do you sort of, you know see Nike now? Because you, know, in so many ways, you've got all of these you know incredible community initiatives uh, that pop up. I mean, it, it goes so far beyond being a brand, but yet in so many ways, it has sort of these these values of Oregon uh, that also run through it, um, yeah, and it's been yeah. embraced globally. Um, how does it sit today? Well, well, first of all, I don't remember a thing about 1992. <laughs> I barely do as well, but <laughs> but. Uh, I think I think you're right. Uh, I think Nike is a is a far different uh, organization overall than it than it was when it was smaller and earlier. Um, but and and we know that happens when think when when companies get bigger and more global. And certainly those those two things have happened. Um, you know, a lot changes, but. But some things don't change, and I believe it's uh, uh, it's we're really fortunate to, to have the same top leader as we did back then. So um, our uh, CEO Phil Knight, and um, actually he's chairman of the board now. We have a different CEO. His name is Mark Parker, who is a friend of mine, and maybe you even ran into him back in 1992. I don't know. No, I was just there to see you. Oh, okay. Well, I'll, I'll be sure. I'll be sure to remind him. That. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Tim, I wanted to just start off by asking you about the actual the kind of processes. I'm a bit of a, a sneaker fan. You're probably more than fed up me meeting people like me down the years. Uh, how does that process work? Because I know you've talked before about how the actual kind of creative sparks flow better, kind of not during the workday, if you like. You, you need to take your inspiration when you're sort of out and about in your own time. Is that still the where you start? Is is the the offices where you kind of coordinate all your thinking and the real creative moments are sparked somewhere else. Is it still the same story now? Yeah, I, th I think uh, for me anyway, design is, is a little bit probably like anybody who writes music or, or uh, you know, is, is just like a, a magazine or a novel novelist, magazine writer or novelist. It, uh, you know, inspiration strikes you at odd, odd times. And uh, I think the days are pretty much reserved for the, the conducting of business, if you will. And that uh, there's, there's so many... Um, so many, so many things need to be uh, well um, orchestrated during the course of a day to to, uh, to do what we do, and I think it's true with most most businesses. So, so if I find that um, you know I, I run around and I'm in meetings and I'm traveling and I'm you know and I um, you know and I'm 
you know, essentially uh, always probably thinking about design, but I don't, I don't really get to actually execute on that, on, on those ideas until nighttime or the weekends, mm. you know? So uh, uh, that's when I actually do it. And I have, I, have, uh, I have a couple of different design studios that I kind of retreat to when I can. Uh, and I, I wanted to come back to that, the role that this city has. I mean, it, it certainly seems, it, it, you know, it, it occupies a different place on the world stage now. Uh, and as we were saying at the top of the program, you know, whether it's sort of you know, the, the food and drink boom that is mm. happening here. Uh, and you know, maybe it's always sort of bubbling under, underneath. From a design point of view, is it a great place to come back and, and, and retreat to? Or do you find as this business has become bigger, do you also have to be out on the road more than ever before as well? You know, I think uh, we're very fortunate here um, to live in, those of us who actually live in Portland, it's, a, it's an actually uh, inspirational and fun and exciting place uh, just by itself. Uh, but it's also um, clearly not quite as uh, frenetic and energetic as a place like Hong Kong or New York City or Beijing or something like that. So, uh, so we 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 are very careful. I'm, I I am particular. Uh, I like to say that uh, these the center of the universe does not revolve around Portland, Oregon. As much as we'd love it to be the case, it doesn't. So, so we're off to London. We're off to Paris. We're off to Barcelona. Uh, I, I and I travel a lot, and I think that that is really the only way to be truly inspired and, and to get a feel for what's going on in modern culture and, and, and also the, you know, the history of, of design and, and culture as well. The Big Interview is our program we launched back in 2015, where we speak to the biggest names in culture, business, media, and politics. Over the years, we've had everyone from Sir Ian McKellen and Samantha Power to Dries von Naughton. In this clip, we listen back to episode one, where our Tom Edwards spoke to the German designer Eric Speakerman. No, in those days, those days, I'm talking about the early 50s here or the 50s. I was born in 47, so I went to school in 52. Printers were part of every high street. I remember all the Italian places uh, in Tuscany. Every town had its printer. I know it. I saw it in Brazil, for example, in Argentina, in India, uh, in sort of some of the countries that used to be the, the third world. And they hadn't thrown the stuff away. Now, of course, printing plants have become plants, so they've moved to the burbs. Uh, like in London, you know, Fleet Street, they used to print in Fleet Street, and they all moved out in the 80s because the, the plants became too big and the logistics moving paper in and out, which just became too much hassle. So it wasn't unusual, but it is true that we lived literally next door where I was born, next door to the, the little local rack, because at the time also every every village had their own little you know messenger, telegraph, whatever. And... Um, as it happened, the people who run it were the age of my parents, so they befriended them. And I would benefit by going in there and I would get the little cutoffs. We would go in there and sit by the printing machine and draw, because I used to draw a lot. And as my father was a lorry driver, truck driver for you Americans, you know, he had you know, a, a, a lorry and a trailer. So, and I had long, narrow paper, so I could draw five trailers. And of course, it must have now. This is post-rationalizing. The sound of the machines, the, the guys walking about, the, the, the noise, uh, the smell, the, the grease, the dirt. I mean, printing is actually, even though it's on virgin white paper, actually quite a dirty exercise. You know, there's ink, there's grease, there's oil. So maybe that sort of, you know, if I ever went to a shrink, I probably it'll probably come out that that changed me forever. I don't know. All I know is that I used that paper, and um, I was kind of familiar to the to the sound. And then years later, we moved. When I was eight, so not a few a few years later, we moved to another town, a little bigger, and and there again next door, literally, um, even though it was a bigger town, Bonn. In fact, there was the university printers, which is a much bigger place. It was a proper plant, and um, I. Went in there 
because I was then in charge of the school rag and I was what, 12 or something? For some reason, I was the designer because I could draw, right? So I, I would go in there, and of course, it would all set in. in, in, in uh, we didn't do lick and stick in, you know, in, in, later than you would put them, the layout together. I simply brought in articles, uh, typewritten, and he would set it and put it together. I was just the messenger there were. And I remember this one moment, and, and he had a little proofing press with the size of this table where you, you know, you, the pages are made up of bits of metal, and uh, you run... You put a bit of ink on there by hand and you run a piece of paper over it to pull it up as, as the proof sheet. And then you look for the mistakes and you maybe even give it to a proofreader before it goes into the machine because then it's too late. And I just remember this machine, I'm not sure whether it was doing this, you know, it's all sort of like gray metal and the type is sort of black and, and then there's bits of brass in there, bits of wood in there. It's, it looks pretty messy. Uh, and the machine's messy. The guy's wearing a blue overcoat. His hands are dirty. So when he touches paper, he, he puts two little pieces of paper between thumb and index finger to touch the paper and puts it on the machine, runs this little roller over it, picks up the piece of paper, and there is on this, on this white sheet of paper, there is this bits of, these bits of black, just where the words are. Not dirt, just if you've ever seen a printing form, you know, the background looks as like the foreground. There's no white space. It's all metal. It's all messy. And especially there because it was kind of improvised. And I just could not believe it. How did he just do that? It was total magic going for a 12-year-old kid, you know. I wonder then, do you think that maybe some of today's uh, designers, is it easier? We've got the technology. We maybe talk a little bit about how technology has changed the work that you do later. But do you think people miss out from not, in this case, quite literally getting their hands dirty? Is that something that actually helps? Or does that not really matter when it comes to the creative process of, of, of great design? Well, apart from the sort of nostalgia wave that we, we experience at the moment where people uh, come back to, I mean, in, in my new letterpress shop, I, I, to earn the rent, essentially, we, we offer courses for mostly people who come from this, the new background. So it's partly nostalgia, like, you know, we cook ourselves again. It's, it's part of this sort of hipster thing. We build our own bicycle, just going back to actually making things with your hand because if you spend all day with a mouse uh, looking at a screen, you realize this is not the real world out there. It's virtual. And, you, you know, we are still made of atoms. And if you work with bits all day long, it becomes a little much. So that's part of it. Uh, part of it is also the revelation that space actually is not empty. On the computer, you press the return key and it moves on. You know, there's white space doesn't exist. There, in, in old-fashioned letterpress, you actually have to touch the space. So the space just happens to be the stuff that doesn't print, but it's still there. You know, every carpenter will tell you that a drawer is not empty. You know, it's, it's contained on, do, on five do sides people, at least. Do people, do you think, uh, sometimes fail to understand that, that the space is more important than what's actually there? Especially well, when, when, it comes never, to, when it comes to great typography in particular. It's never an issue. But then it becomes an issue. And then you realize, wait a minute, if I, if I, if I use that, and there was a discussion recently just now online about having, having uh, sort of working with grids and CSS and cascading style sheets. Um, if you work in metal, it's a, it's a grid by definition. This has been a selection of some of our favorite moments on air, selected as part of the celebrations to mark 10 years of Monocle 24. You can listen back to our selection by heading over to monocle.com. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.